Okay, you guys, here we go. She Runs Ultras episode 43. And this is the one you've been waiting for. (laughs) The one all about my 2021 experience at the Barkley Fall Classic. Now, if you just found the podcast, if you're just, this happened to come up in your search engine, if you haven't listened to my previous episode about the BFC, that is episode number 40, go back and listen to that one because it's just going to set this thing up a little bit. It's going to give you a little bit more context. So I mentioned this on Instagram, but I waited to record that episode, the first one, episode 40, specifically as late as I possibly could, because things are always changing in the world of BFC. So usually I like to get ahead of episodes and then have maybe, oh gosh, like one or two banked and ready to go. But it's Thursday, I'm recording this one. And I did the same thing When I recorded episode number 40, I waited until late in the day to record so that if something changed that I could have the most like accurate and up-to-date news in the world of BFC. Woo! (laughs) I've been at this for a while today, so don't worry. It's all good. (laughs) Pay no attention to the crazy podcaster. So the rules and procedures are kind of are in flux with BFC. Like if you are in the Facebook group, you've kind of see the shenanigans that go on in there. So long story short, I waited to record that episode um, because I wanted to have everything buttoned up. And so I didn't want something to change and it actually happened anyway. So I waited until Thursday to record and upload that that episode. Then Friday morning, I got up, I went out for my usual walk, came back, checked Facebook and saw that um, Laz, the race director, had posted something in the Facebook group about drop bags and poles, specifically that they were not going to be allowed this year. So I laughed so hard and cried a little bit on the inside at the same time because I did a whole segment about my plans for my drop bag this year. And within like 12 hours, that was now obsolete. (laughs) So... Um, It doesn't really surprise me. It's like totally on par for BFC and I've kind of become accustomed to it, which is why I waited to do the episode and it's still sort of backfired. So back up and listen to that episode uh, and then come back and like you can listen to this one just for a little bit of context. It makes it funnier, I guess. I don't know. Um, So let's just like talk a little bit about BFC because it's been a couple weeks. And if you're listening to the first time, and if you don't take my advice and go back to the previous episode, this is going to come in handy. Uh, Barkley Fall Classic is a version of the Barkley Marathons, aka like the big Barkley that happens in the spring. And there are some similarities between the two races when it comes to, you know, the physical location and certain parts of the course. But besides that, they are wildly different races. Um, and I think the best way to kind of share my experience at BFC is just to kind of run through the day, like, and kind of give you a blow by blow, you know, firsthand account of what happened. I talked about this in the last episode, but um, my husband and I actually turned this into a road trip. So we drove from New Hampshire to Tennessee on Wednesday and Thursday. We did like a two-day kind of road trip thing. And uh, the weather was crazy. There were, the whole route that we took was basically covered in this massive thunder storm, which 
should have been foreshadowing, but we'll get to that in a minute. We drove through some crazy torrential rain. We got there on Thursday, you know, afternoon, evening, kind of checked into our hotel and just kind of chilled out. And then Friday was Friday was packet pickup. So that morning we got up. We did some stuff. It wasn't until 3 p.m., so we had some time to kill. Um, We did a few other things first, like we went to um, get lunch at the prison, which is actually part of the course, but they've actually turned... um, the, the prison into a tourist destination where you can tour and go actually go inside and go into the cells. We did this two years ago when we were there and you can actually see what it's like to be incarcerated there. And, um, it's side note, it's pretty scary because it's largely unchanged from how it was back in the day. I mean, they basically just close the doors. So what you're seeing is what they had. It's like, so primitive. It's crazy. Um, and I actually think that there are a couple guys that work there that are former inmates. And so they give tours and they give share personal anecdotes about their time there, which is just wild. So, um, they've converted some of the other buildings on the property to be like a restaurant and there's a distillery. So it's like a whole thing now. Um, so it's a good way to kind of kill time and learn about some of the history. So we got lunch and then we took a drive on this road that's adjacent to the prison that's actually like really well known for hairpin turns. And, um, it's similar to like, if you've ever seen, um, tale of the dragon, which is also down South, you can YouTube that there's like some crazy, you know, motorcycle and car videos that kind of shows what these turns are like. So we did a similar section of road, um, up by the prison. We just kind of cruised around it in our forerunner, like (laughs) not on motorcycles or anything, but it was a good way to kind of like tour and see, what's going on and pass the time. So fast forward, we got to packet pickup. I got there right at three because I wanted to have ample time to look at the map. And there were tons of people there already. Like everyone obviously had kind of the same idea, get there early, look at the map. So I joined the line that was kind of snaking around the volleyball fields. And of course, Laz was there doing his usual, like strolling through the crowd and talking to people and just like being himself and people were jumping out and like asking him for selfies, which I always really enjoy how kind of like down to earth he is about this. Like he was talking to some people next to us that asked for a selfie and he was like, yeah, I mean, I guess, I don't know why you guys want my picture. He's like, my family certainly does not understand this. They just totally laugh when people ask for a selfie with me, but sure. What the hell? So it was pretty funny just to kind of watch him navigate through the line and it went pretty fast and just as about like I was getting ready to pick up um my packet I was like next in line one of the volunteers like casually mentioned while he was handing the map to another runner that there was a last minute course change that was not reflected on the map so you might want to air quotes figure that out (laughs) so I heard this, it totally registered in my brain, but I honestly thought it was kind of just another scare tactic. So I didn't really think too much of it because no one else seemed to be at all worried or alarmed. Like nobody flinched. So I was like, "Mm, okay, I don't know what's going on here, but we'll figure it out. Grab my bag, headed back to the car and we kind of rolled out the map on the hood of the truck and I just dove right into trying to figure it out. And Honestly, if you could see this course map, it would totally blow your mind. It's Lass has developed this like crazy color coding system. And, you know, it's like it's a course map overlaid on like a topographical map. Um, 
but he does all sorts of things to try to distract you. It's not like you're just going to get the map and there'll be, you know, one line that kind of directs you around the course. You really have to sit down, look at it and think about it. You can't just glance at it and attempt to figure it out on the fly. So I have the added benefit of this being my second year. So I saw last year's map and I think that every time you do it, it gets just a little bit easier to figure out where you're going on the course. Plus you recognize certain things. So I don't necessarily think that the course gets any easier, but it's just not as confusing uh, initially, I think, to figure it out um, and to like understand where you're going. So anyway, we looked for it, looked at it for a little bit, and then Adam had to take a break because he said it hurt his brain. And I definitely can't argue with that. Like if you're really thinking hard and looking at the arrows, it's like easy to get confused and to overthink it and to just like burn out your brain. So even I got like some brain burnout after I looked at it for a while. And I actually started to second guess myself as to what the order of operations was, like which way to go and what came before what. And so that's when I had to just pack it away and come back to it later. Cause I was like, I'm going to stress myself out or overthink this or, you know, just like fuck it up if I look at this too hard. So we went back to the hotel, got something to eat and tried to go to bed early, fully knowing that I wasn't actually going to sleep much that night. Um, I actually think I like fell asleep to Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen, (laughs) which probably like wasn't the best way to fall asleep, but I got somewhat of a decent sleep, maybe like five hours, which isn't as much as I normally get, but it's on par with what I would expect to get the night before a race. And actually this, this kind of brings up a, a good kind of side note. One of the things that I learned from a coach a long time ago was not to worry so much about the sleep the night before a race, but really to focus on the sleep that you get two nights before the race. And that's going to serve you well. So I think it's like, we all have, you know, pre-race nerves or jitters, or we're excited and, you know, really trying to get a lot of sleep the night before a race is almost futile. (laughs) At least for me, it is like, I know I'm going to get some, but I know it's not going to be good or high quality or lots of REM. So I really try to get good sleep two nights before the race. So Thursday, when we got into town, I really tried to get to bed as quickly as possible and get as much rest as possible. I don't have any scientific data to back that up, but I've been practicing this for, I don't know, like seven, eight years now. And I feel like it has served me really well. And it's definitely something that I'm going to be asking my sleep expert, Risa, when she joins us for the next round of Run Farther, Faster, Stronger, like my winter reboot edition, but more on that later. So sleep is like a big priority of mine coming up here. So not a lot of sleep. I ended up getting out of bed around 3 a.m. just because I couldn't toss and turn anymore. Like I just, I needed to be upright. So I jumped in the shower. I took my time. um, I got something to eat and drank my coffee and just kind of got ready at a leisurely pace. Um, I should mention that I spent a lot of time the day before getting all of my stuff ready. So laying out all my clothes, putting everything that I needed into my pack, since I wasn't going to have a drop bag, (laughs) I had to start uh, putting extra stuff in there. I filled my bladder, did my tailwind, like all of the little things. 
I did ahead of time because I didn't want to be rushing around the morning of. So that's another like pre-race routine that I've adopted over the years. And the plan was to leave the hotel at 4.30 for the 30-minute drive to Frozen Head. Um, and we nailed it. We got out right on time. I remember pulling out of the parking lot and the clock read something like 4.28 or 4.29. And we did that because... You know, parking for this race can get a little hairy because there's like a, f- a finite amount of space right at the start, and then you have to you have to disperse and park a little bit further up the road. Um, and it can the line can get really long, and I just did not want to be stressed out or even worse, like late to the start. So the caveat to that is we were there two hours before the start <laughs> because there was obviously no traffic, and we were on time, so. I was totally fine with that. I tried to take a little mini nap in the car, but I didn't actually fall asleep. I just kind of, you know, laid there and people were coming in and out of the parking lot. And so it was kind of distracting and I just haven't mastered, uh, the skill of falling asleep at the drop of a hat, which is something I'm going to try and work on over the winter. But, um, honestly, I, I just tried to use the time to chill out. I worked on my breathing. I just tried to relax because the nerves were really hitting me hard. I don't, I mean, I know why, but I don't know why they were so intense like two hours before the race and not, you know, right at the starting line. It was actually reverse. I got into the starting shoot and I was like, hmm, okay, this is, this is cool. I can do this. <laughs> so it was weird, but it's funny because I actually posted about this the other day, but I went into this race at a lower level of conditioning than I would have liked. I was worried because of that, that I might not finish. And I I mean, I I really, obviously that's not the outcome that I wanted. So I was, that was stressing me out a little bit. So managing my mindset was a big part of my pre-race process and honestly, like throughout. So we'll kind of get into that a little bit, but my mantra for the last time I did this race was I didn't come this far not to finish. And I was definitely channeling a lot of that again this time around. So I kept repeating myself. I didn't come this far not to finish. Just did my breathing. Like really tried to just zone out and like get calm before the race. So two hours fast forward to the start. Um, Oh, I guess I should actually talk about my pack and how I adjusted things for the no drop bag policy that got dropped on us, no pun intended, um, at the last minute. So I told you the night before I like got all my, my bag ready, but the specifics of what I carried was uh, a two liter bladder with tailwind and extra tailwind. I had three extra packets of four scoops of tailwind. So that's a lot of tailwind. And I was actually anticipating it being really, really warm. Um, and so I didn't want to run out of tailwind because that stuff is like my savior. Um, I had food. I had like a little bit of trail mix. I had some scratch gummies. I had uh, a pack of like baby wipes. I had my lip balm. I never go anywhere without my lip balm. Uh, my standard issue compass and whistle courtesy of BFC. I had a little mini first aid kit with, you know, band-aids and a little bit of like medical tape and, you know, just like the bare minimum stuff. Uh, my gloves, which I mentioned in the last episode, which were 
invaluable this year. And then I hadn't decided if I was going to pin my number to my pack or if I was going to wear my like race belt or pin my number to me. So I just put it on my race belt and attached it to my bag so that I wouldn't forget it because that's obviously a very bad thing. So Basically, I went into this being 100% self-sufficient with the exception of water that I was going to get at the aid stations. And this year, there were a number of aid stations that were also serving as checkpoints where you have to get your bib punched. And this is how they know if you've you know done the course correctly. And the last time I did it, the aid stations were pretty sparse. This year, totally opposite. They were pretty well stocked um, with all sorts of, you know, single serve snack stuff. Um, I didn't partake in any of it because I didn't know that it was going to be there. So I really, again, tried to just be as self-sufficient as possible. Um, Okay, I'm like, I'm kind of jumping all over the place. I'm like looking at my notes and jumping all over. So let's go back. I'm in the starting corral. So I've passed my two hours successfully. I haven't gone totally crazy we're at the start. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to watch people. It's kind of like a guilty pleasure of mine. I'm a people watcher and I attribute this. I just, this is my disclaimer. Um, I'm a sociology major and, uh, that this, my love of people watching was totally reinforced by my years and years and years of working grassroots marketing and kind of interacting with consumers. So I'm really good at reading people and I just like to watch general human behavior like on the whole. So you can imagine like in a starting corral, it's like, I'm like in my element. I just love people watching. So at this race in particular, I like to see what everyone has chosen to wear clothing wise. Um, and surprisingly, a ton of people chose to go either shirtless or in their, just their sports bra and shorts, which I think is like an aggressive (laughs) and quite frankly, could be possibly dangerous move, but that's just my opinion. Um, so I was really shocked to see the guy standing next to me was wearing just kind of basic running shorts, tall socks, which is like very interesting, very interesting combination. So shirtless, basic running shorts, tall socks, like compression socks, and like almost like a rucksack, not a more traditional like slim fitting hydration packer vest like a rucksack and side note I saw him later in the race and this this is why I'm saying this is like an aggressive and slash dangerous move because the chafe that he had going on because of this pack was epic so um lots of people in long sleeves and long pants various combinations of short and long it's just like it's it's one of the things that I like to pay attention to um I particularly chose short sleeves and like short kind of almost like compression shorts not super super short but just enough that there wasn't um like a lot of extra fabric hanging around that could get like snagged on things and I did this because I didn't want to overheat that's like my big thing. Cause the last time I did BFC, it was super hot and like very dangerously hot. And I was wearing longer pants, um, and, a, and a sleeveless shirt and I got like burned and overheated anyway. So <laughs> I was just trying to like split the difference here. And I was willing to take my chances with the pricker bushes, uh, f- in favor of not overheating. So that was just a strategic calculated choice on my part. I'm not saying that's the best choice. I'm just saying that's what I went with. So take that for what it's worth. If you're considering running BFC, I did see a lot of people put on protective stuff 
as we were getting to some of the stickier parts of the course, like where you were going to incur some cuts. Um, but to me, that just seemed like a waste of time to keep putting on and taking things off. And yeah, I mean, it was just, we can talk about that later, but so anyway, uh, my plan for this year was to put myself closer to the front, um, of the pack of the starting corral, which is not my preferred place, but with the time cutoffs for this race, I did not want to be at the very back of the pack because then I'd get stuck behind people without the ability to pass. And, you know, the time cutoffs are kind of aggressive depending on what your comfort level is with running and uphills and all of that. So I did the really uncomfortable thing for me, which was to get up close to the front. I mean, I left plenty of room for the super fast people, but I was right up there. And so we're in the starting shoot and right before the gun went off, they made a few announcements that I could barely hear because people were talking around me and the speaker just wasn't loud enough. It was like super scratchy. So you couldn't really hear anything. But one of the things that they mentioned was that course change. So remember when I was in packet pickup line and somebody said, Hey, you might want to figure this out. Well, here's the time. So someone alluded to this the day before and for a microsecond, when they were talking about this course change, I freaked out because I couldn't hear anything. And then all of a sudden I heard, and Larry will be there to show you where to go. And like that was good enough for me. <laughs> I don't know why it shouldn't have been, but it was good enough to me. Like if somebody was going to stand there and like, tell me where to go, that's like a bonus because you don't typically have any of that at BFC. There's no, like, there's not a ton of course markings. No one's really standing there telling you where to go. So the fact that they were saying that someone would be there was like, okay, sold. I'm good. Um, and kind of along that same lines, when I tell people that story or they hear about the course and the changes and like the lack of markings, um, I got a lot of like DMS and emails from you guys about how, you know, having advanced knowledge of the course, would stress you out. Like the lack of that, like not having the map, you know, days or weeks ahead of time. So I can only imagine like hearing this thing about being there, there being a course change and me not knowing about it until literally seconds before the gun went off. I'm sure that's probably like stressing a ton of you out, but what could I do about it? Right. I mean, nobody really knew. Like I, I tried to like figure it out, but honestly, at that point, I just was willing to kind of roll, roll the dice and kind of go with the flow. And just to kind of continue on this like thought thread for a minute, the unknown, the ambiguity, the fluctuation that happens at BFC is like, it's a big part of the race from an adventure perspective and from a you know, challenge perspective. And people are drawn to this, obviously, because there's like so many people that run it year after year and people are repelled by it. And that's exactly what Laz wants. So uh, like people, people don't necessarily understand this and you don't have to, but that's, that's really what he's going for that kind of push pull effect and the BFC and obviously the big Barkley isn't for everyone and to complete them, either one will definitely the big Barkley, but BFC as well says a lot about what you're willing to do, not only in training, but the day of the race. So, um, every year there's a theme to the race, or I probably should like 
it's actually a tagline that becomes the theme of the race. And back in 2019, it was all about either being a winner or a wiener. (laughs) And this was the year of the pelican or the pelicant. And this kind of had two meanings. But I love this one so much because I like, like I mentioned, you know, early on, your mindset has so much to do with this race. So the pelican, pelicant refers to kind of the shape that the course outline makes. It loosely looks like a pelican, pelican, Um, but he created this whole can you or can't you dichotomy around the race? Like it's going to be hard. Are you able or are you not? And this... This sends people into serious spirals. If you're in the BFC Facebook group, like he starts posting these things and people are pulling out of the race left, right, and center because they're just not sure he gets in their head. I love it. I love the mental side of this race so, so much. It's like, it's awesome. Anyway, so the gun goes off and we all head out. And the nice part about this start was that we had time to kind of spread out, sort ourselves out in terms of pacing before we hit, um, you know, kind of this wide dirt Jeep road. And I was happy with the place that I started in the corral. And I tried my hardest to kind of stay up front, but not the very, very front of the pack so that I wouldn't get bottlenecked on the trail. And, um, yeah, I mean, it worked out nicely for me. So by the time we hit more of the single track stuff, we were spread out and I didn't have to like jockey for space. Um, what else can I share? So we started in the dark, uh, and I had my headlamp, um, and we needed it for about the first 30 minutes or so. Uh, and then after that, I just ended up carrying it for a long time, probably until the, uh, first checkpoint. And then I stashed it in my bag. Um, but it was basically like three or four miles uphill to the checkpoint. So this is where I did a combo of power hiking and jogging. And as with all the races I do, it's all about energy management. That's how I like to look at my strategy and think about all of these things. So my plan was to go harder than I usually do in the beginning, just for the sake of a good spot in the pack, and then adjust my pace accordingly to the terrain so that I didn't exhaust myself before the halfway point, right? And so this is actually something that I work on a lot myself and with my athletes, specifically the different speeds of walking, like when to use them. So just something to think about if you're trying to, you know, break into ultras, like if you are thinking that you are going to have a hard time, you know, doing those extra miles, or if you're trying to go farther, like level up to the next distance, walking and, you know, speed walking or power hiking are super effective tools to have in your backpack, in your back pocket, excuse me. So power hiking up the hill, this whole section, my focus was just moving and breathing, trying to keep up a good cadence, make good choices in terms of my foot placement, because, you know, with the low light, um, it can be kind of hard to suss out where the rocks are and where the holes are. So, um, just trying to do that really well. And then the big one, not get swept up in someone else's race plan, like not trying to do someone else's pace or speed or their line. Um, and I also should just mention here and like remind you that there's no GPS, like you can't wear a GPS watch. Um, and I actually chose not to wear a watch at all. 
Um, some people did to just help them keep track of the time and the cutoffs, but honestly, I didn't want the distraction. So everything that I'm going to kind of talk about here in terms of time has zero data to back it up because I didn't wear a watch. I had my phone on airplane mode, um, to just check time every once in a while. I basically only did that when I hit a checkpoint or an aid station. Um, actually I only did it for the first, maybe three and I'll tell you why later, but, um, so you can't hold me to any of this, like how long it took me to get from one to the other or whatever, because I just, I was basically just running on feel the whole time, which is probably stressing a lot of you guys out, <laughs> which I get, but I didn't want to have my watch in front of me and constantly be checking it. That would have been a massive distraction to me, a waste of time when really my focus was head down and go. So I get to the first checkpoint. I feel pretty good. I'm a little tired from that like initial burst of energy expended, but not totally spent. And the next part of the course, we got to run on this really cool ridge. And it was a little bit of a roller in terms of the up and down, but it was a really nice break for the legs. And I kind of fell into this group of runners, maybe like I don't know, eight or 10 of us that were all going about the same speed. So that helped me to like keep a going at like a really good clip. And then not long after that first checkpoint, we did the ridge and then we came to a spot on the course that was that change, right? The, the change to the course that nobody knew about. And as promised, Larry Kelly and his Aussie, his Aussie dog were posted up there. I always get super excited when I see other Aussies. So that's why I'm making a big, big point of it. So they were posted up there kind of pointing us in the right direction of where we needed to go. So that was like a, you know, weight off my shoulders. Um, And as I got to thinking about it, I'm not entirely sure why we had to make that change to the course, because we actually went up the section that we were supposed to go down at that point later in the day. So, and there weren't any issues with the trail. So I have no idea what that change was all about, whether it was like to spread us out more or like what it was, but I got through the first hurdle successfully. And side note, that course change actually added three or so miles to what Laz was referring to as the warm up loop. So I hadn't anticipated that, but in the end it was fine. I mean, I have to, you have to do all the miles anyway. So whether they're in the beginning or the middle or the end, it doesn't really matter. You basically run this race until you're done. Um, but there were a couple other things that I hadn't anticipated during this warm up loop, which sounds so innocuous, but it really wasn't. During the warm up loop, we also did the Pillars of Doom and there was a water crossing. So in, I keep referring to the BFC Facebook group. And if you guys are in it, I would recommend, if you're interested in doing the race, jump in there. Um, but because there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens, but in the group, Laz posted something about a water crossing paired with this like hand-drawn infographic on, (laughs) wait for it, how to get rid of leeches. Now this is Honestly, one of my worst nightmares, you guys, creepy crawly things that stick to you and suck your blood. So I saw this post and uh, I, I just blocked it out. I honestly thought that it was just like another scare tactic. Uh, turns out I was wrong, (laughs) 
but we'll get to that in a minute. So first, before I could get to the water crossing, which by the way, I also had no idea where on the course it was going to be. So, you know, in usual typical BFC style, things get thrown out, but you have no idea where they are. But I had to go over the Pillars of Doom first. And again, I had no idea that we would have to do this. That wasn't published in any way, shape or form. So, so many unknowns, <laughs> but it's, honestly, it's, it's all good. So let's see. Okay. How do I describe the Pillars of Doom? So, uh, we're running along this ridge and the Pillars of Doom are these big stone columns but they're not man-made. So think of, you know, think of stone columns, but then think about them being etched away out of a huge rock that's been there for millions of years, right? So they're spaced out like stepping stones, but in between each of them, they're probably, I'm holding out my arms like you guys can see me. (laughs) They're probably, I don't know, three or four feet across, like in width. So they're a decent sized rock and they're mostly flat on top but in between them there's like a 20 or 30 foot drop on all sides right so just picture these columns stacked close by but they're really tall and you could fall off and fall 30 feet (laughs) so I'm coming up on these things in that group of eight or so runners there's some in front of me there's some behind me and just for more context I'm five five And the guys in front of me had no problem navigating this feature. They kind of just stepped right over these rocks. And I should also say that by this time, there was like a little bit of drizzle, like a little bit of rain happening. And the Pillars of Doom are mostly covered in moss. So I hop on the first one, no problem, because it's pretty close to the edge of the ridge. Then I get to the second one. And then the leap from the second to the third was much longer than the previous ones. Like I could, I could easily kind of step from the, from one to two, but then two to three and then three to the other side was a little bit longer. So I got onto the second one and I kind of hit pause on the top of the second one while I was trying to judge how much like oomph to put into that last step. And while I'm doing that, some dude behind me was like, okay, now let's go. And so frustrating. And like, I'm telling you this story and it seems like I'm taking a long time to explain, but all of this is happening in like a nanosecond. And in my head, I was pissed and I was telling him to fuck off because I was annoyed by the fact that he was like pushing me. Like I clearly needed a second to just gather myself. And that's what I said out loud. I was like, I just need a second And then literally that was it. I just needed a second to take a breath and calculate the step. And then I took it. And I'm sure that, I don't know. I always try to give people the benefit of the doubt. So here's, here's my benefit of the doubt. If you're that dude and you're listening to this, I'm sure that you thought that maybe what I needed was like a little nudge, but in reality, I just like needed a second to collect myself and just assess like I have a fear of heights specifically a fear of falling from heights and I had no idea that this element was going to be there so I just needed a second like if you really wanted to go that fast you could have been at the front of the pack instead of the back of the pack just saying so and also keep in mind like he was like six feet tall all leg so what was a leap for me was a step for him like no big deal so 
I get it from his point of view. It was probably silly for me to be standing there on the top of the rock, standing still, but for the love of God, just chill the fuck out. Okay. So that's my mini rant about the pillars of doom and people pushing people before they're ready. But anyway, uh, so I did those no problem. And actually, um, it was nice to have seen them in the daylight because spoiler alert, Uh, that was actually part of the 50 K finishing loop that we were going to do later. So I was happy to see them in the daylight and not have to come across them for the first time, um, in the dark. So after pillars of doom, you just start ripping down this dirt Jeep road and it was totally rutted out. So big, baby had rocks and ruts and, you know, berms and just, it was like really, it was really rough on the legs. So I tried not to blow up my quads within the first third of the race. Um, and as we were doing this, I was like hearing rumblings from people behind me about the water crossing coming up. And I hadn't even really given it any thought. I thought there's no water out here you know, from my memory, I'm thinking, I don't know anywhere where there's water. Well, turns out Laz found the water. (laughs) We, um, turned a corner and I could hear people kind of off in the distance. And then we turned another corner and then all of a sudden there it was, it was like this big stream. And at first it looked like no problem. Like all of these guys were in front of me and they were going through and it was, you know, up to their thighs. Well, I get in and it's actually like up to my mid chest and it's cold, like cold water. So now we're all wet. Some of us a little wetter than others. Um, And I should reiterate that at this point we were a few hours in the weather is overcast. It's still warm. So I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted about this because I was a little on the hot side, like a, a little bit overheating. So it was nice to get cooled off. However, I didn't really want to get my feet and my, basically my whole body <laughs> all wet. Um, and of course, Laz was at this spot. My husband was also there, uh, which was nice. So it was, it was like good to see him, uh, get that little boost. You know, we had talked about me being there within like two hours. That's when I thought that the, that the warmup loop air quotes, warmup loop was seven miles when it turned out to be 10 miles. And I was, you know, um, two and a half plus hours to get there. I apologized to him because, you know, we had a plan and he was like, no, no, no. I, I heard from somebody else that this was where the cor- the change on the course was. So I knew not to expect you like at the two hour mark, like we, like we had talked about. So, uh, I waded through the water. Luckily I didn't pick up any leeches. Thankfully, round of applause, uh, got my bib punched. And at this point I really, this is TMI, but I really needed to pee my one beef about the course this year was that there were zero porta potties. If there were some, I didn't see them. Um, so just a little, you know, side note for Laz and or <laughs> other race directors out there. Um, if you're going to have a race, please put a porta potty for the ladies. I mean, I have no problem going in the woods and, and I did not at this point, but at other points I did, but you know, I mean, there are some people that maybe are a little more modest and they, they don't want to pee in the woods. So just kind of keep that in mind. Um, 
I could have gone into the ranger station, which was like 50 feet to my right. Um, But at that point, I didn't want to take the time. Not to mention, I was freshly out of the water and soaking wet. So trying to peel off layers to go to the bathroom was just going to be a pain in the ass. So I opted not to. I said, fuck it. And I continued up the trail. (laughs) I was on a mission now. I was kind of like mad that I was wet. (laughs) And in a second, it didn't really, wasn't going to make a difference. So I just kept going. So I kind of just hoped that there would be a place to pee at the next checkpoint. So, um, go through that checkpoint. What happens next? Oh, chimney top. Um, and that trail got its name because there's literally a freestanding chimney, like one from your house that's on the top of this ridge. So here there's like a ton of elevation gain, a ton of switchbacks, um, until you get to the top where you get to kind of run along another ridge, which is really cool. There's not a lot of views per se, cause you're still kind of in the trees, but it's really nice scenery. Um, and actually at this point is when the rain started. <laughs> so many of you guys probably saw my Instagram post about this, but Initially, it was just some rumbles in the sky and I got excited because the rumbles actually started on the warm-up loop and then there were a few droplets on the warm-up loop and then we got wet and then we headed back into the woods and I thought, okay, great, maybe just some more droplets. Nope, it was Armageddon. Like the sky opened up and it started to pour relentlessly Um, and basically in no time I was so wet that I forgot about being wet from the water crossing. So that just to give you an idea of how hard and how quick the rain was coming down. And it kept up like that for, I mean, again, I'm not wearing a watch. In my mind, it was like four or five hours. It was like relentless for a long time. Um, the next checkpoint that came up was one that we actually looped through a couple times. And this is where some of the key features of BFC come into play. So if you've watched the documentary before, you've talked to people about this race before, you might've heard things like rat jaw, testicle spectacle, meth lab, the prison. So these are some of like the splashy highlights of BFC. Um, and in 2019, at BFC, we did Ratjaw one time. In 2020, they actually did it twice. This year, we did it 1.5 times. So it was like kind of a happy medium in between. And we didn't actually start from the very bottom. We came in halfway to climb to the fire tower to get your bib punched. Um, and I guess like it's also worth mentioning that the condition of the trail it's not really a trail, first and foremost. It's not open to the public, and that's why there's such sticklers about publishing the course map. So um, you wouldn't see, or you shouldn't, I say, see Strava or Garmin data from anybody that did the race, because that's a big BFC no-no. People have been um, banned for life for doing that. So just you know, keep that in mind. If you're thinking that the rules don't apply to you, um, they do, and you won't be allowed back, but, um, it's not public land. It's actually off, off limits unless you're doing the race. So it's a, basically a hillside Ratcha is of pricker bushes that you have to navigate. And if you're the first, like if you're the leaders, it's way harder because you have to blaze the trail. And if you're at the back, 
you do have the luxury of a path being blazed for you, but it doesn't mean that they've, you know, taken like a weed whacker to this and, you know, made it well manicured. It's still tough. I mean, if you have seen any post ratchet pictures, uh, my husband likens it to, um, being attacked by a horde of feral cats. It's like your arms and legs get so cut up. And this is why people choose to wear different um, length layers, arms and legs and, you know, sleeves, no sleeves, pants. I saw some woman pulled on like these huge gaiters that went from her ankles to her mid thigh. I mean, like there's crazy combinations of stuff out there. So this section and basically the rest of this course was made exponentially harder by the rain. Um, there was just this slick Tennessee mud on everything. I mean, I just couldn't get a grip with my feet, my hands, uh, or whatever body part you might have tried to deploy to keep you from sliding. Uh, on certain parts of Raja, you can stand up, like you can pop your head above the pricker bushes and kind of get the lay of the land. But a lot of it, you're going to be kind of bear crawling. Some sections, you're like using your hands to grab onto essentially what's like a scrap piece of, um, what do I want to call it? Uh, it's like a metal uh, what is the word? What is the word that I want? It's just like this scrap wire, coated wire that's like laying on the ground. It's obviously attached to something because we're using it like a uh, repelling line, but you're using it to pull yourself up. I mean, it's, it's just like, it's wild. It's the wild, wild west. <laughs> so um, halfway up the halfway rat jaw, this, my friends, is where I encounter the rattlesnake. <laughs> And if you know me, you know my aversion to snakes. So this was also like my worst nightmare come true. In 2019, I didn't see any snakes. I heard rumors of snakes, didn't see any, was super excited. Um, This time around, I was in a group of four or five runners. There was a group ahead of us and a group up behind us, you know, spaced out maybe 10 to 20 yards. And the rain was just coming down so hard. You know, when you're like in the forest or out in the field and the rain is just hitting the petals, uh, the, the leaves on the trees and the, the noise is just so deafening. Well, that was the case here. And then all of a sudden we heard the group ahead of us like yelling and we, we had to really, I had to like pop my head up and look because they were calling back to us. And all, all I heard was snake. And I was like, oh shit, here we go. My worst fear coming to fruition. So we called back to the group behind us. And I think there was people behind them. So it was kind of this, you know, chain uh, effect. And we got up to that point. So that group kind of blazed a a wider path around the rattlesnake and we got to that point and I kind of like couldn't really physically grab onto the person in front of me, but I was like, please don't leave me. Like I have a huge fear of rattlesnakes. And so we all just kind of went wide around it. But the caveat was the hillside was so slippery and you had to go around and up kind of above where the snake was sitting and try not to slide back down physically into the snake. So it was curled up off to the side, rattling, looking at us. And I just, I just, I, I just, I looked at it. I needed to see where it was. And then I was like, I had like my turbo boosters turned on and I just went way wide and just kept going. Like I was just running on adrenaline to try to get by it. 
So we get out to the top, um, get your bib punched, and then you have to start to navigate your way over to testicle spectacle. And the word spectacle doesn't even begin to describe um, what it was that day. I mean, this is another off course um, section where you're not allowed on there unless you're part of the race. And on rat jaw, you're going up on testicle spectacle, you're going down and then back up again. So there's two-way traffic here on the course. You got to go down to the bottom, get your bib punch, turn around and come back. And I mean, the, it's just so comical. You guys like, like the best way to describe it was like being on one of those game shows where you're just slipping and sliding all over everything. It's like, I, when I was telling the story to my husband later, I said, it was basically like you just strapped sticks of butter to the bottom of my shoes and into my gloves and just set me free on this trail. It, it was just so slippery. So I don't know exactly how far down testicle spectacle it is, but it was a ways. And the whole time you're just trying to navigate the path of least resistance and not try to slide into other people, not take anybody else out. Um, lots of people wound up with, you know, ripping their pants, um, some people, there was a lot of butts. There were a lot of butts hanging out um, on the way down and on the way up. And then basically throughout the rest of the race, people were like snagging them on rocks and, you know, tiny branches and things and just pants were ripping everywhere. Luckily, that did not happen to me. I took the approach of uh, kind of like water skiing. I put one foot down in front, other foot down behind, like heel to toe, use my hands. I tried to like ski on my feet. I mean, you know, everyone took a different approach, but basically that's how I got down. (laughs) And then coming back up, it was just so physically exhausting because now you've had, you know, a couple hundred people try to do this trail and people are grasping at anything that is growing in the ground. Some of it sticks, some of it's loose. Uh, This is where the gloves come into play because you're literally grabbing pricker bushes for your support system um, and trying to pull yourself back up. So I didn't get any video of it. I I meant to search YouTube before I hit record here to see if I could find some, uh, because there were some guys that had GoPros that I was running near. So I'm sure that there's some video out there. I'll, I'll look when I'm done here and maybe I'll find something and I'll put it in the show notes, but it was, it was comical. So I think if I had to say, if I had to pick, I think that going back up was easier than going down. Um, there were some tough spots to navigate coming back up just because the hill was off camber and it was slippery and it was, you know, there were lots of people, but, um, going up was coming easy, was, was easier than, than going down. So after testicle spectacle comes meth lab, which normally I know they're, they're great names, right? Normally this place looks like a scene straight out of breaking bad, like the desert of breaking bad, but because of all of the rain, it actually looked like a world's ending type of flood scenario, just rivers of water rushing down the trail, air quotes, um, which isn't an actual trail. (laughs) Like it's, again, this is another off trail, off course section. So same thing here, sliding on your butt or on your hands um, and just trying to 
not slam into anybody else, not take anybody else out, not rip your pants. <laughs> um, I will say, <laughs> this is a some fun side note. I was trying to decide what shoes I wanted to wear for this race. So I had, um, my shoe dilemma this year has been that ultra sells out of eight and a halfs, like almost instantly. So if I'm ever in need of shoes and I don't either order them online or get to the shoe store before like early, then they, they go out of stock. So I ended up ordering a pair of men's Olympus that worked fine. And then I did get my hands on a newer pair of women's Olympus, which fit and feel much better, but they're like brand spanking new almost. I mean, I probably only run 75 miles in them, like not a lot of miles. Um, and they're like, you know, pretty and like, you know, I like to keep my stuff as clean as possible. And I made a last minute decision to wear the new shoes because they were just going to be more comfortable for the entirety of the day. And somewhere around, um, testicle spectacle, I just had to break up with the idea that these shoes were ever going to come clean. (laughs) They were, I really wish that I could have gotten a picture of how just decimated they were. I mean, at one point I was sliding down doing that like skiing action and I was creating a wake of mud with my shoes. I mean, they were, you couldn't even tell that they were this fun salmon color anymore. They were Tennessee brown orange. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. So uh, eventually we got to the road that's adjacent to the prison after meth lab. And then it's still wa- raining by the way, just buckets. Um, uh, I got to see my husband, I got to see Adam at the prison and this was where I was really starting to have some internal battles, some struggles. I mean, this up to this point, it was so physically exhausting and mentally exhausting And when I saw Adam, I kind of unleashed a little bit. Like I came just slightly unhinged because I had been kind of keeping it like bottled up and I was just trying to stay moving and and keep going forward. I came into the aid station like on a mission because, oh, I don't know how long before, but my stomach had turned and it was kind of sour. I was having some bloat going on that I just couldn't get rid of. I had had, I had taken some, um, stuff, some medication to try to curb it and it just wasn't working. So I came like tearing into the aid station and I wanted some bubbles, some like soda or something to help. And I was cranky and I was trying to like manage myself, you know? So I really felt like a hot mess on the inside, but I'm told on the outside that I was fine. Like I did end up apologizing later to Adam because I felt like I might have just unleashed on him like a little too much, but we kind of have this rule (laughs) about situations like this, especially during races, like not to take anything that I say or do personally, because it's not me. It's the race. I don't know. It just like, we have this rule (laughs) about it. Um, but I always feel bad afterwards, even though, you know, I, I don't mean it, but it's just like the stuff that happens during a race and you have to process. And if you can't, you know, get it out. Sometimes you, the only time you can get it out is on the person that you see. And sometimes that person just happens to be your spouse or your friend or a family member. And 
you know, just, I would suggest maybe having this rule with other people that crew for you, like anything that you say or do during the time of the race, they, they can't and shouldn't take it personally. It's just you processing what's happening. So pro tip, (laughs) um, so he did, he was a godsend. He got me a seltzer. I tried to suck it down as much as possible. Um, and it didn't, it, it worked, but it didn't work, but I didn't want to stick around the aid station too long. Uh, I needed to keep moving. That has, that had always been my, um, my plan, like don't stick around, don't linger, head down, go. So we got to the prison and this is kind of fun. This is like a fun part of the prison that's incorporated into the race. You got to go up and over the wall and then you actually have to go in the drainage tunnel underneath the prison. Uh, side note, if you have your headlamp, this comes in handy, especially on an overcast day. Uh, so more water in the drainage tunnel and it's not really a like drain. It's just more of like a rain runoff tunnel. So it's not really, it's not sewage. It's just water drainage. And then back up Ratchaw, because why not, right? <laughs> so um, you come out from the drainage tunnel, you got to kind of snake your way around. And before you can even get to Ratjaw, you have to actually just go up this dirt berm <laughs> that goes straight up, like just straight up. And because of the rain, there was nothing to hang on to. I, this was one place where I really struggled. So there were a couple guys in front of me coming into this and then like nobody behind me, like it was like, it was like crickets behind me. And I really struggled here. Um, and I did have this thought to myself as I was trying to get up this face, like I really should not try out for Ninja Warrior. Like this is just not my thing. I seriously considered at that point adding like rock climbing to my training regimen because that's what I felt like I was doing. I wasn't trail running. I was rock climbing in some weird perverse way, but, um, I did manage to get up the thing and then just headed back up rat jaw again. So the first half turn that we did on it was halfway up. So when we started the second time, it was all the way from the bottom. So we hadn't done this section yet. So this whole time you might be imagining you're right. I was terrified about the rattlesnake. I was terrified that I was going to see another one. I was terrified that that one was still there. And so I was trying to stick with some other people, which is why I was so frustrated that these two guys in front of me just like kept going. I mean, not only the fact that they like saw me struggling on this hill, you know, that initial dirt berm and they just kept going. Like they heard me, I slipped (laughs) and crashed so hard that I ripped open my elbow And then I was just like, I was like one of those tree frogs just hanging on the side of this berm, not moving, not because I didn't want anyone to see me, but like, I just, I couldn't figure out my next move because if I shifted my weight, I was going to start sliding. And they kind of saw this, like I locked eyes with the guy ahead of me as he turned around, he heard me hit because I was like, when I hit, he turned and looked at me and then just kept going. So... Hey man, you know, maybe a helping hand. I don't know. But anyway, I was able to get up, started to go up rat jaw, terrified of the snakes, was trying to catch up to some people in front of me. Didn't happen. So I did a large part of the lower half of rat jaw all by myself. And it was really just an exercise in self-talk. Like I'm good. There's no snakes here. Just, you know, just put one foot in front of the other, put one hand in front of the other and just keep going. Um, 
And actually, I did catch up with some people eventually and made it past the point where the rattlesnake was previously and he wasn't there anymore. So that was like, once I got past that, I felt much better. I mean, there was a lot of suffering happening on rat jaw, just the, the level of physical exertion to try to get myself to go up. It was a lot. And when I tell, when I was telling the story to Adam later, I told him, I think like I either died a little bit, <laughs> died a little bit up there or left part of my soul on rat jaw. Like it took a part of me. So when I got to the top, there's always a photographer at the top of Ratja, which is great because she gets, or they, whoever it is, um, they get some epic pictures. And so it's funny because I think sometimes people don't know if they're a spectator, how much of a mental boost they are. And there was this group of women that were, I think they were associated with the photographer that were standing at the top of Ratja. And I'm going to get emotional about this. And I don't, I just, I know why, because I was just in a world of hurt and I was in a dark place and I was just trying to continually keep moving forwards. But there was the photographer and there was this woman at the top who was just calling out to people like, you got this, you got this. And I was close enough for her to see my number, which was 75. And she just called out something to the effect of, come on, 75, I see you, you got this, 75, let's go. And it was just like so incredibly helpful to be seen and to be cheered on and to be, you know, just have that little bit of a boost, especially since I had, it was a very stressful, it was a stressful trip up Rat Jaw for me because of the, you know, the snakes and all all of the stuff. Like it's really, it's hard to convey just how challenging um, that is if you haven't done it. It's it's hard. So I'll leave it at that. But so that's also a side note about if you're a spectator at a race, just know that even if we pass you with like dead eyes, like we don't make eye contact with you or, you know, we don't have any words, uh, please don't take it like we're not happy to see you because I guarantee you you're the, the person that's passing you that you're cheering for is super happy to see you. They just don't potentially have the capacity to express it. So just kind of keep that in mind. Um, so I was happy to get to the top of rat job because that's really the point that I was working towards all day because getting there the second time around meant that everything, the, the really hard stuff was behind me. And now all I had to do was just run, right? Like the other stuff, rat jaw, testicle spectacle, meth lab, prison, like all of those things are really tough, full body physical challenges um, that you don't necessarily think you're going to have to take on in a 50K, but that's what BFC is all about. So now I could get back to the act of just running. So I hurled myself down this trail to a spot that's called Decision Point. And it's one of the checkpoints on the course. And it's here that you have to make the decision, hence the name, about whether or not you're going to continue on and go for a 50K finish 
or whether you've had enough and you want to tap out and you want to just do a marathon finish. So you always have the option. Unless, of course, you don't make the time cut off for that spot and you have to, you're forced because they don't want you out on the course super late at night when it's super dark and have to go then find you should you get lost or whatever. So I rolled into decision point. My husband was there again. Another great uh, morale boost. I think this is when I apologized to him for, <laughs> for, for being so terrible the last time I saw him. And of course, Laz was there. Many of you guys have probably seen the Instagram posts that I that I put up. Uh, my husband filmed me as I was coming in there, and Laz always, always, always likes to punch bibs at this point because I think he gets a kick out of trying to talk people into winning the marathon, air quotes, winning the marathon. So I rolled in, got my bib punched, and um, he said, "You know, uh, you could you could win the marathon." And I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, nobody else has, uh, has gone that way yet. So you, you could win the marathon. And I was like, oh, well, that's quite a deal. <laughs> um, but going all the way back to the beginning of the episode, I did not come all of this way not to finish. And so I told him, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I'm going to continue on. At that point, I think we had... We were ahead of the time cut off by three hours. So I had three hours to go um, roughly seven or eight miles. Um, And honestly, like if I had just power hiked the whole thing, I would have been totally fine. So knowing that, like having some context about how much time I had, how far I had to go, you know, really was kind of a no brainer. Like if you made it in three hours, why would you choose the marathon? Unless you were just so totally physically wrecked that you couldn't go on like, you know, injury or whatnot. So, um, I had made a a new friend, Chris, along the way over the, the top of, uh, Ratcha. And so we opted to kind of work together here to go up Bird Mountain and finish the final loop for a 50k finish. And, uh, our plan was to just power hike this first section. Um, again, a lot of elevation gain here, a lot of switchbacks. And uh, what I liked about this time was we just shifted into low gear and we're just hoofing it. I mean, there were like a lot of hands on hips, you know, just a lot of heavy breathing, just trying to, uh, we talked a lot to distract ourselves from, you know, the the entirety of the race up to this point. Um And that's like the cool part about BFC is that you'll make a lot of friends along the way just doing the damn thing. So Chris, thank you for your help and your camaraderie and the push at the top Uh, because Chris took off at the top. We got up up to the ridge again, got to running. He uh, was there for me over the pillars of doom again. I did the same thing. I got to the second one, just needed a second and then was able to make the, you know, leap to the third and then the other side. And, um, I told Chris the story about my previous run over, over the uh, Pillars of Doom. And he was like, yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> so um, finished the Pillars of Doom. And then 
really it was just hurling myself down this Jeep road, the same Jeep road that we had done again on that warm up loop. Um, this time it was even more rutted out because of all the rain. And at this time, like my quads were totally shot. <laughs> my quads were shredded. My feet felt okay, but I knew that they were probably wrecked in some way, shape or form. Like my body had just started blocking out the signals <laughs> that it was getting from my feet because they were just so havoced with all of the water and the dirt and, you know, just all the stuff that were in there. And quite frankly, I was just like really exhausted and ready for this thing to be over. So I had downloaded some music on my phone and I turned it on just to keep my spirits up, keep my pace up, and it just distracted me. So this section feels like it went on forever and it did, but at the same time, it didn't. It's just this weird time space distance continuum because I knew how far I had to go roughly and then at some points it felt like a long way at some points I was like, wow, that this isn't really that long. And so you kind of just have to, what I try to do anyway, is just get into a groove and just, you know, put the music on and just try to keep moving. So that I'm not really thinking about, oh, it's so far, how much longer, you know, yada, 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 just, just keep going. So eventually I got to a point where I could start to hear people and music in the distance. And I knew it wasn't other runners because I did basically that whole Jeep road like by myself. And then I got it into my head, like that's the finish. And it gave me such a big boost mentally, like physically, I didn't want to go any faster because, uh, it was starting to get dark. I I actually pulled out my headlamp for the last little bit and I didn't want to rush and potentially like trip and fall and hurt myself and then like not finish. So I just kept up like a good steady pace, walked when I need to, to navigate, you know, some of the tricky or slippery parts because we did still have some, uh, rocks and, you know, little stream crossings and things that could trip you up. And when I got closer and I heard those people, like I could hear an announcer, I could hear music. I had this like huge wave of emotion, like come over me. I teared up a little bit. I did a few like fist pumps and then I almost tripped. (laughs) So I cut that celebration short. Um, I dropped out onto this flat part of the trail. And then it was like, all of a sudden I was in the finishing shoot. Like I have no idea how what I did before differed from this, but somehow I ended up on the finishing shoot. And that was fine with me because I crossed the line with like an hour to spare, an hour ahead of the time cutoff, which is oddly basically what I did last time. I didn't actually look up my time from 2019, but it was probably pretty close. So I finished in uh, 12 hours, 35 minutes and 48 seconds. So I wanted to kind of just read some results from the race because I think it's pretty interesting. Um, So there were 468 people signed up for the race. There were, trying to get to the top here, there were 176 people that finished the 50k. So 468 total 176 finished the 50K, and there were only 30 women that finished the 50K. 
I just want that to settle in for a second. So 176 and 30 of them were women. Okay. That's blows my mind that there were only 30 of us that finished the 50 K. There were 72 people that finished the marathon distance. So, you know, a little over half finishing rate, kind of. I didn't really do the math, but you can do the math if you want. And the same thing there, in the marathon finish, there were 31 women that finished the race. So it's just crazy to me that of 468 total entrants, that 61, 62 of us finished. Um, and that's, there are a ton of, you know, most, the rest of people, uh, uh, the rest of the people that didn't finish, uh, probably either, um, decided to drop, they didn't make a time cutoff, um, or any, you know, variation thereof. Maybe they, maybe they got pulled, maybe, you know, something happened. So this is pretty on par for what Laz likes to see in terms of a finishing rate. Like he purposely makes it hard and you really have to work hard for it. But I want to just like, I wanted to point out the number of female finishers because I think that this race could use more female finishers, obviously. Um, so if you're considering it, jump in there. Um, because we could obviously use more than 30 people, 30 women finishing each of the races. So keep that in mind, put BFC on your list. And if you want to know how to train, I'll help you. (laughs) Okay. Um, each time I finish this race, Adam likes to ask me if I'm going to do it again. (laughs) And in 2019, after my first time, I said, no, definitely not. One is good enough. And then I got a real case of FOMO from hearing all about the 2020 race. And that's how I ended up putting my name back in the lottery for 2022. He asked me again this time. And I said, no, like very vehemently. No. Uh, but for different reasons, like the first time I said no was because the heat was just so brutal. Uh, this time the rain was just so brutal. And, you know, I, I feel pretty strongly about it that I don't need to go back again. Um, I guess I would reserve the right to maybe want to go back again. <laughs> I know so many people love this race and it definitely holds um, a special place in my heart, especially now after the second time. Um, but it's a serious challenge and I feel proud to have been able to get in twice and finish twice because you know, some people attempt this race, they get in and they attempt it multiple times and either they get a marathon finish or they DNF. Um, so I must be doing something right. <laughs> I'm not trying to downplay this, but like I, so I, I am bad sometimes at acknowledging my accomplishments. So this is like a half-hearted attempt to do that. But to be honest, I did it again a second time because I was having FOMO, but also I was having this like really nagging feeling that I was a 
one hit wonder that somehow I got lucky and was able to finish BFC, even though the heat was just a total bear. Um, I wanted to do it again to just prove to myself that I could. And this time around was just as hard as before, but in a different way. And so I think if you're like looking for a serious challenge, BFC will undoubtedly test you. I categorized it as a 50k on steroids with like a dash of Spartan race. And if you're old enough for this reference, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, like thrown in there for good measure. Um, And you never know what you're going to get. And that's what makes it so great. It's not just a physical test. It's a mental and emotional test. Um, And self-talk was a huge part of this race for me. So I kind of want to go off on a tangent for for a second and talk about that here. Because I mentioned early on that I had this kind of mantra or saying back in 2019, um, I didn't come this far not to finish. And that was something that I kind of pulled out in the beginning miles of the race, but at some point it wasn't cutting it. So I switched over to the heavy hitter. I call it the heavy hitter that kind of carried me through to the end of the race. And that was, I'm a two-time BFC finisher. It's not really a mantra so much as it's a motivating statement. And it actually proved to be like really invaluable to me, even though I was doubting, nervous, scared. I knew that I had done the race before. I was familiar with large sections of the course and I, I knew I was capable of doing it again. So With self-talk, you want to find something that's believable to you. So for example, I wouldn't have said, I'm going to win BFC because the winner had three hours on me. So that's like, I knew I wasn't going to win it. So that wasn't believable. But what I kept repeating myself to myself was the outcome that I wanted to have happen. So not letting myself get caught up in the frustration or the scared mindset or, you know, any of that stuff. All my effort went into doing the things that was going to make that statement true. I'm a two-time BFC finisher. And so I just kept repeating that to myself. So things like not lingering anywhere on the course, especially at the aid stations, like moving as quickly and efficiently as possible, everywhere, not just like where it was convenient, not letting shit get to me, um, you know, not breaking down every time something didn't go right, like, you know, getting right back up, air quote, dusting yourself off, but like wiping off the mud and keep going. So I just kept repeating that phrase. I'm a two-time BFC finisher. I'm a two-time BFC finisher. I'm a two-time BFC finisher. And even though it was kind of a stretch. It was believable. And that's what I just kept working towards. I mean, I had plenty of super low moments in this race. Lots of times where I was physically like sliding down a hill, frustrated to the point of tears because I just couldn't get any traction. I had no idea how I was going to be able to keep moving forwards. Um, but I didn't give up on myself physically or mentally. And I think that's the biggest 
takeaway from this. I, it's funny because I actually got a message, a comment on one of my posts from someone on Instagram that was there, another woman who um, said that she wished she had just sat on a rock and talked to herself for a few minutes about what was going on. Because she ended up, she actually decided to pull the plug. So she DNF'd. And that is huge. It's such an important thing to kind of understand what we're talking about here. So what I tell my athletes is never make a decision on the spot. Wait at least a minimum 10 minutes, you know, 30 minutes or beyond. And then check back in. Because it's going to change. Your circumstances are going to change. Like if I made the decision to quit the first time I couldn't get traction, I would have, my, my day would have been over like six hours into it, you know, whatever is happening in the moment, it's going to change. And I'll kind of leave you with this because this has been so helpful to me and my athletes over the years. And it's a way that you can, it's going to help you to decide if you truly want or need to quit or, you know, DNF. So whenever I'm considering stopping, whether it's mid-race or even mid-training run, I always ask myself this, how will I feel about this decision tomorrow? I think forwards, right? You decide to quit the race, you go home, you wake up the next day, are you going to be happy with that decision or will you regret it? Okay, so how will I feel about this decision tomorrow? So quick story to kind of demonstrate this. Back in 2018, when I attempted um, 100 miles for the first time, I ended up dropping after 75 miles for a myriad of reasons. Um, But it wasn't, I didn't make that decision until after I spent three hours like walking back to um, our like base camp, still, still on course, still tracking. Right. And thinking about what I wanted to do. And that's really when I came up with this filter, I had given my husband like some really strict instructions before the race. Do not under any circumstances, let me quit. So when I was behind schedule, like I, it was taking me longer to arrive than it should have. So he, he actually started walking backwards on the course to come and meet me a little bit. And I walked into the aid station and I told him that I was done. He very dutifully tried to get me to reverse my decision. But once I had explained to him like what was going on physically, like all of this stuff and the kind of forward thinking that I was doing, he totally understood. And so now that's how I filter so many of my decisions. You know, how will I feel about this tomorrow? So just, you know, kind of take that one in, think about it, maybe, you know, pull it out of your back pocket the next time you're on a run or in a race or honestly, like, you know, making any sort of decision. I use it largely when it comes to training stuff because, a lot of what we do is just so hard, you guys. Um, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but like a lot of what we do is so hard. And we have a lot of 
outs. Like we have a lot of opportunity to just opt out. And so I think it says something about you every time you don't opt out, every time you do the hard thing or you make the tough decision to, you know, do your run, to do your mobility, to do your shakedown, to eat right, to go to bed early, like all of those things. Those are all serving your greater goal of, you know, getting to this race, but also just having a higher overall like quality of life. And so if you start to filter all of your decisions about through this, through this lens, right? How will I feel about this decision tomorrow? Or how will I feel about myself for having made this decision tomorrow? It's really useful. So take that pro tip, use it. If you do use it, let me know, hit me up either on Instagram or or, uh, email and let me know, because I'm always interested in how that technique works. So Ooh, okay. I have come to the end of my notes. <laughs> that was a long one. You guys, we have been going for almost like an hour and a half now. So, um, a couple quick things that I wanted to tell you before you go kind of unrelated to BFC. I have a lot of like really cool, fun stuff coming up. And so the first is I'm going to do a free workshop on October 20th called shake up your shake down. So if you guys have been following me for a while, especially over on Instagram, you will have seen these like time-lapse videos of me doing like movement and stuff. And, um, I'll post the link in the show notes, or you can go to the link in my profile on Instagram and sign up. This is a freebie. And I've talked about my shakedowns a little bit here, but it's part of my daily routine. Um, It helps me to get ready for the day. I primarily use it for warming up before a run and It's not an over-exaggeration to say that it has truly changed the way that my body feels, not only while running, but also in my day-to-day life. So in this workshop, it's going to be about an hour. I'm going to share why you should never skip a shakedown, some of the key ingredients in it, like the things that you should do, how to personalize it to what your body needs, and then kind of three tips, if you will, to get the most out of your shakedown. So don't miss that one. And if you can't make it live, I'll send you the recording, but you have to be on the list. So go sign up again. It's either, uh, the link I'll put it in the show notes, but you can also get the shake up your shakedown through the link in my Instagram bio. Okay. The second thing is if you live in my neck of the woods, I'm going to be teaching a class at Ted's Shoe and Sports. So if you remember, Ted was on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about shoes. And on the 7th of October, I'm going to teach uh, a free class all about hips. Um, it's one of my favorite areas of the body to teach on. So this is really cool. I'm going to run you through one of my favorite routines to build strength and mobility and just like talk about how, you know, your hips are the source of your power. (laughs) It's very cliche, but also very true. So that will also be, uh, the link to sign up for that will be in the show notes as well as in my bio on Instagram. And then last but not least, you guys is the, I'm so excited about this one, the, the next round of run farther, faster, stronger. It starts on November 1st. Words seriously just can't even describe how excited I am for this. I know it's like, I'm using the word excited a lot, but 
I got the idea. First of all, I wasn't sure if I was going to run another session of the program because it's been such a busy year. And quite frankly, I could use a little bit of a break, but I got to thinking about how I wanted to spend my off season. And, you know, I'm going to race ghost train in a couple of weeks. And then here in New Hampshire, we get a lot of snow in the winter. It's not like down South or out West where you can basically run all year long. I can do some running, but typically I kind of take the winter off a little bit. I'll run here and there, and I just try to rest and reset and figure out what I'm going to do for next year. So I got to thinking about how I wanted to spend my time, and I just started to list all of the things that I could have done better this year with regards to nutrition and sleep and mindset and strength and mobility, like just all of the things. And so I decided that's what the next round was going to be all about. So if you're on my email list, you're going to get more information about it next week, as well as access to the early bird pricing. So make sure that you get on there. It's going to be 16 weeks and there's going to be guest experts. This is the part that I'm like the most excited about. So I brought in all of my super talented friends to coach you guys on all the stuff that I mentioned. So nutrition and sleep and mindset. We're going to talk about breathing. We're going to do strength and mobility stuff with me. I'm going to help you with your 2022 training plan. It's like the whole shebang. So if any of these things or all of them, if you've been trying to work on them, and get dialed in for a while, but like you're just not where you'd like to be, come join us. Like seriously, I am, I'm so excited. So the best way to get more info about this program is to jump on my email list. That will be in the show notes or again, via the link in my Instagram bio. And, um, that's where, you know, next week I'm going to send out an email with all of the details, the early pricing, the link to like get the whole thing. And we start on November 1st. So, whoo. All right, you guys, thanks for hanging in there with me. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Enjoy this beat and I'll see you all soon. Thank mm-hmm. you.